first two of the four, we'll, we'll finish up all the rebellions. So we'll end up around chapter 19, chapter 20. And then the last two classes, we cover the rest of the book, uh, which is really like the synthesis and the summary and the to-be-continued of Second Samuel, the Davidic kingdom, God's plan, God is king. Uh, so it's, it's a really exciting time. The things started simple and they get more complicated, <clears throat> especially now that we're in this time of rebellion. And so I, I need to frame what's going on, especially since we haven't really been here, practically speaking, for two weeks of lecture. And so I think we've, we've lost track of what's happening. So let's begin with the word of prayer and then we'll do a little bit of review. Lord, thank you for how you have paved the way for your son. And as we think more about Israel's history, as we think about how you have put a specific lens on those past events, help us to understand more of the great need of the nation Israel and the nations of the world for your son and the and the need of the Davidic dynasty itself for its ultimate king to come and make all things right. Uh, we just ask that this would be instilled in us and that we would see uh, your commitment to your plan, how you still reign and rule, and how that cannot be deterred even if men fail. And we just thank you for victory after victory you have in redemptive history, paving the way and culminating in the ultimate victory that is in Christ over all things. So allow our hearts and our minds to imagine this and to capture this rightly today. Be with these fellow believers as the end of the semester is near. There are so many pressures, Christmas concerts, assignments due, and exhaustion is setting in even more, and the end is in sight. Let us all persevere, O oh God, for your glory to finish well. Not just to get by, but to actually know this and to and through this to love you and to love your son more. May that truly be the cry of our hearts now. Be with us now. May we have an engaging and edifying discussion. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. We got to cut out the laughter. Because everything from now on is not funny. No, I'm just joking. Uh, the... One, one thing, though, actually, that this class should really help you do, uh, Hutchison was in my office. He's always in my office, uh, which is good. I really like him. I, really, I think he's, like, awesome. But, um, and he's telling me about a preacher that he recently heard that uh, talked about David and Goliath and said, you know, you always... We always hear that, you know, you should be like David and kill your Goliaths. And the preacher said, no, you are actually the Israelites who needed David to kill Goliath. And I thought, and Hutchison was saying, like, that's kind of like allegorization. And I said, I agree, but I think if you framed it right, you could, if you understand the Davidic covenant, go there. You can't say, you can't make a direct correlation like that. Everyone with me on this? But David and Goliath, through the lens of the Davidic covenant, can set up 
for Jesus being the ultimate David and the one that we ultimately need to conquer. Does that make sense to everybody? And, and so it's not just, you can't just put it in there, but you can say something like this. Why, why did Israel have to fight Goliath? Why did they have these problems? Because, like in the time of the judges, there was no king. The whole reason why you have all these problems is because Israel needs a king and, the, and there is a need for a king on a greater scale in the world. David is the man for the job. And we've already seen that even more clearly in the book of 2 Samuel. He and his line are the line of kings that will solve the problem. The problem is, of course, that David himself, even though has, who has really great beginnings, doesn't have that. And so we await for the ultimate Davidic king, the one king to rule them all with the covenant that rules all covenants, the Davidic covenant that accomplishes all the great work. So there is a tie, right, between something like, you know, David and Goliath. There is a tie between that and, say, Jesus Christ and his conquest. It's not, but it's not that they're the same thing, but that in biblical theology, through the lens of the Davidic covenant and what God is doing, yeah, there has to be a tie here, right? You just have to figure out how to connect the dots correctly and how to interpret this. You don't want to make this about Christ because then you lose the drama and the, and the generation of the theology of need and of victory that is associated with the Davidic dynasty. You can't lose that here. But you realize that that contributes to a greater cause for Jesus. Does that make sense? If I, if I could um, put this in a different way, <coughs> maybe, none, maybe a lot of you here aren't classical music people. Uh, that's okay. But you would hate classical music more if we, treated the old, if we treated the orchestra like we treat the Old Testament sometimes, right? Um, you know, I play violin, so I'm kind of biased. And let's just say, man... The violin sounds so awesome. Let's make everything a what? Violin. Well, do you just want to hear everyone play violin at a big orchestra? No, that, that would defeat the whole purpose. And you want to get all the different things that you need to make to make the soloist great. Does that make sense to everybody? Or to put it in a different phraseology, and this, this might work better because Paul uses the same metaphor for something entirely different, the body. You're like, man... Soccer players, they're just so fast on their feet. Let, let's all just be feet. I mean, I just wish my whole body was a foot. Well, that would just be ridiculously foolish, you know, because you would die. Okay, so the... <laughs> so, do you understand? I mean, you know, you might think, man, look, you know, this is so great and Jesus is so great. Yeah, but what makes him great is all these other individual strands which have their own individual impact coming together to make him great. Not that you just go back and flatten everything else out. Does this make sense to everybody? So hopefully you see, look, God is building toward Jesus, but the way he builds it gives him more glory if you pay attention to the details and let them be sustained rather than just saying, well, this is about Jesus, so let's just spiritualize everything. Are you with me on this? Because if you're like, oh, let's just spiritualize David, and then you ignore all these problems, right? Then Jesus doesn't get the glory of solving the problem. Do you see that? He doesn't, he's not this great king. He's just, well, he's just, he's just king, just like everyone else is a king and everything. There's no climax here. 
you've got to the Bible creates this dramatic problem and these dramatic tensions so that when Jesus fulfills them you understand how great he is you can't just flatten it out right I mean Lord of the Rings would be really boring if you did that it would lose all its dramatic features. It was just like, well, everything's about Aragorn. So Aragorn, you know, he, he wins the battle and he drops the ring and it's all happening at once and that's what the whole story... No, it's not. There's a progression here. Okay, and let's see that tension. You know, as well as I do, that really, and I, that there are tr very great tensions in the created by the Davidic Covenant. If I could graph this for you, the Davidic Covenant along the y-axis and God's loving kindness on the uh, on the wait DC is on the y loving kindness is on the x and and here's how it kind of works the Davidic Covenant sets up a tension between man's failure that if David sins God will punish him according to the terms and conditions of the Davidic Covenant. But his loving kindness will never leave. You guys got to have that verse memorized. 2 Samuel 7, 15. 14 and 15 to be technical. The, there's a tension here. Fit, human failure versus God's loving kindness. And what happens is, at first, David... I mean, he's a failure in so many different ways, but we don't see the climax of his failure until what event? Or what series of events? Bathsheba. Exactly. And so, while there are hints of failure, there are hints of his human frailty. Remember, he multiplies wives. Remember that? He, does, he makes bad decisions at times. Remember that? It's not so great until, or it doesn't compound until you hit Bathsheba. And then, everything is tremendously high. And I, I guess you could say it crosses the threshold of what, what is terrible. So here we have, and this is, you know, 2 Samuel 10 through 12, really. This is a total disaster. And because of this, punishment must now ensue. You know that. And, and as history goes, the failure, I guess you could say, and the punishment becomes higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And I guess, you know, depending on how you want to do this, but failure is getting greater and greater and greater as David fails with Bathsheba and then God punishes him and he fails as a king. Remember, he's tricked all those different times. You know, uh, Amnon comes in and deceitfully tricks his father. He can't deal with the situation. Then Absalom comes in. Then Joab comes in. And then Absalom even more. Everyone remember this. Just one thing after another thing after another thing. David cannot handle it. He's not a king. But the question and tension at the same time, which doesn't come out until really what we're going to talk about today is this. God's loving kindness. God's loving kindness. We have a hint of it because <coughs> God says, David, I'm not going to what? Kill you for your sin. Even though you said that should happen, I'll kill your son, right? And David, even though I killed your son, I'll give you another son in play whose name is Solomon, and he's going to take continue the throne. So there are hints of loving kindness, but that's early. Now it's like 
David just make mistake after mistake. You are not the right king. You are not the right one. And your sin is continually ripping up your dynasty into pieces. This culminates with uh, a collapse, not only of David as a person, but a collapse of David's power over his what? Yep, military. And then finally, what do we have? A full-on rebellion which rips David of his political unity. It's all collapsing. And so what we have as um, what we have now is the rest of this kind of rebellion narrative between Absalom and David is the tension between David's failure and God's loving kindness. And it's trying to show you something okay, David's a failure. He's never doing anything right. He is a loser. He he isn't the right king. But somehow God is going to keep him in power because there are bigger issues. This raises up an important question. This is all background. Uh, Would David's dynasty continue with with Absalom? Like, why didn't just God allow Absalom to win? Is Absalom a son of David? Yeah? Yeah? So would the Davidic dynasty be over? No. So why not just let Absalom win? See, do you, under, do you understand my question? There's no compromise on the Davidic line. Absalom is part of the Davidic line. Well, if Absalom takes over, does David still have a son on the throne? Yeah. So, what's the problem? He has to die. Absalom has to die. Why? He's one of the four. Yes, that's key number one. But there's another key. There's something more in the immediate mechanisms that have to force him to die. Why does, why does he even start this coup in the first place? Historically speaking. Okay, that, that presumes that God was going to what? Give it to him. How do we know that God wasn't? He already selected Solomon. That's what launches this whole problem, is that God has specifically chosen Solomon. He's renamed him, if you remember, to Jedediah, the one that the Lord loves. Jedediah is a play on what word? What, what other name do you know that has two D's in it? David. The Lord's beloved, David, is another way to say beloved. This is the new David. Does that make sense? He is the extension of you, David. That's what God is saying. And when that happens, Absalom knows he's what? You're out. And so this isn't just well, you know, hey, we could replace David with Absalom and the Davidic covenant would continue. No, it won't continue, at least not the way the capital K-I-G wants it to continue. Does that make sense? And so this is still a matter of God continuing the true Davidic line, not through Absalom, but through Solomon, the man of his choosing. (laughs) These are the tensions you have to see, and they're the tensions that will run throughout redemptive history 
And the question is, how do you resolve the tension? That's the question. How do you change failure into success? And how do you fulfill God's loving kindness? The answer to that question, I think, is provided at the end of 2 Samuel, although it is not fulfilled, obviously, until Jesus. But more on that at a different time. We have to see the drama of the tension right now. We are at letter C, the loss, the lack of leadership, part one. Um, I just want to make some review comments as we flip through this. We, what should David have done? When Absalom revolted in Hebron, what should he have done? <clears throat> just a review. <clears throat> Say it again. Killed who? Killed Absalom immediately. Launch an immediate retaliation strike. Put the rebellion down fast. But what does David do instead? He runs. This is the first time, like I said before, David ever says, hey, we got to run. Never has that happened, and that shows, and here's what you're going to have. Oh, you have, a, you have several cycles of this. You have, it's a three-staged cycle, I guess you could say. A three-staged cycle. You have a lack of leadership, you have hope for loving kindness, and then you have God's loving kindness instituted. And right now we have the first lack, the first of the cycle, the first of this series of events. David cannot be king. He is not the king. He makes dumb decisions, and not only that, he doesn't have the bravery of a king or the military successfulness of a king. Instead of staying and fighting, he runs. This is not the king. Samuel saying, don't get your hopes up on David. He's not the king. He's under God's judgment. He's a failure. And it's very negative. So they run and they flee over the Mount of Olives. And next page. This is all review once again. Uh, <clears throat> Zadok, or is this review? I think maybe I dreamed that this was review. <coughs> we got past this, right? Do we get to Zadok? Oh, okay. I thought we had reviewed all the way up to like several pages from now. But that's okay. Okay. Uh, maybe, do I need to say, now Now I'm like, uh-oh, do I need to say anything more? Well, you know, concubines are left. That sets up for things, right? Everyone got that down. And, uh, oh, well, okay. Uh, yeah, let's, let's just continue from there. All right. <clears throat> Zadok comes. All right, and right now we are in between. We are moving from the lack of leadership toward loving kindness. This, I would say, is kind of the hope section. This next page is the hope section. And what the hope section does, okay, so if I could say lack of leadership, David has lost military ability. That's the first one. Um, <coughs> Or maybe even, yeah, let's just leave it like that. Hope is recognizing the reality of the situation and correctly responding to the situation. Correctly analyzing what's going on in the situation, theologically speaking, and reacting to it. Zadok and the Levites come bearing the ark. All right, and what does the ark symbolize? The presence of God, absolutely. And what 
should you have in the back? This might be, you might want to put this down in context and overview. What should you have in the background of your mind when you're looking at this situation? What event happened in 2 Samuel that involved the ark before? Yes, bring it to Jerusalem. What happened there? What was David's problem? He took, yeah, he took it on an, on a cart, and he wasn't. And what, what was the problem? He didn't ask the Lord, right? It was like you treat God as your war trophy. I'm king, and I'm not going to submit to the what? Capital K I N G. Remember that. And here, what do you have? An almost identical situation. And it's not just identical to 2 Samuel 6. There's another situation that it's highly identical to. What is it? It involves the ark again. If you don't know, it's not, not too bad because it's nothing that occurred in this book. The Philistines, right. 1 Samuel 4. They brought the ark as a good luck charm to fight against the Philistines. And does it work? No. Not, not really. It kind of backfires. The Philistines get really scared and they annihilate all the Israelites. Um, here's David's choice. I bring the ark with me, kind of like I did before as a good luck charm, as if to say what? God is on my side. Or I understand what's really going on and what, is, what does David do? send it back. I don't know if God is on my side. But I know this, if he is, I'll return to him, not the other way around. Do you see this? He correctly analyzes the situation. Why why is all this happening to him? Because God, as capital K-I-N-G, is what? judging him, per the terms of the Davidic covenant. And so David says, that ark can't come with me. God is not favoring me right now. But if his what? Loving kindness prevails, then he'll bring me what? Back. Do you see the tension? The tension is already exhibited in this text. David understands the tension between the two. I'm under judgment, and rightfully so, but yet I need to see if God's loving kindness is going to work. And his realization of this, I think, is part of his repentance. His realization of this is part of his repentance. David understands. He's not dumb. Right? He knows when he's under God's judgment. And he knows it's right. <coughs> and he puts himself in the whose hands? In God's hands. That is the tension between, what do we say? K-I-N-G versus lowercase K-I-N-G. Before, David didn't do this. Before, Israel didn't do this. Now what? David does. It doesn't mean he's out of hot water. It just means that there's what? hope. Do you see how that works? It means that there's hope. (coughs) So there's a recognition of God's presence or of God's kingship, I guess. 
That's the hope. God is the one who has to save. And already, in this hope, David starts to make plans at a counterattack. He sends the priest back, as it says at the end of the section, to make a counter-strategy. To make a counter-strategy for, for a spy network. Alright, for a spy network. And already you start to see, hey, there's hope here. It's not all lost. David's made tons of bad decisions. He gave up Jerusalem. That's unwise. He's not a real king. But it doesn't mean it's over. Do you see the difference between the two? It doesn't mean it's all over. It doesn't mean that the Davidic dynasty is over, the plan is over. God, because he's using David's repentance positively, has now provided a way of escape. You're with me on this? Because the question is not just for David, right? Don't get too man-centered here. It's not just for David. David could die, and and God could continue. The the question is, God, can you continue your promises of the Davidic covenant. And how in the whole wide world are you going to do that? Does that make sense, everybody? And this is what we have here. Next page. <clears throat> so, if you've walked through this with me, lack, hope, now we're at loving kindness. This is round one. And in verse 31, someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is amongst the conspirators with Absalom. And what does David pray? Yeah, darken his counsel. You know, make it foolish. Make it completely foolish. Um, <clears throat> because, as we will see, right? And what have I told you before? Don't mess with, don't mess with grandpa. Right? Don't mess with grandpa. And Ahithophel has this incredible counsel, and David knows just the, by way of background. If Absalom has a Hithophel on his side, who will lose? David. There's no way you can win. There's no way you can beat this guy. This would be like Abner, who doesn't know how to play chess, versus like Bobby Fischer, you know? You know it, I mean, I, I would lose against the guy, on the, against the easy version of a computer, much less that guy. This is, there's no contest. Hithophel's going to win. Okay? So David says, this is up to who? God. Make your loving kindness real. And how do you make your loving kindness real here? Confuse Ahithophel's counsel. And what's the next thing? It happened as David was coming up to the what? The summit of the Mount of Olives where God was worshipped. Funny, funny. Why do you need that detail? <coughs> right? I mean, couldn't it have just been like, and it came about, Hushai comes along? Why, do, why does it have to be like, you're walking up a hill, you get to this place where God is worshipped, that Hushai comes? Why, why do you need that detail? What's the play? And it's helpful if you know Hebrew here, because it'll make a connection, but I think you guys can get it. At least part of it. Uh, maybe. But there's something, there's something implied here. The word for worship is the same word for prostrating yourself. What's the idea? Remember, remember I said this word is always so important in the book of Samuel. 
The Amalekite prostrates, remember, bows down, and David's like, I don't trust you. Then Mephibosheth bows down, and David doesn't take advantage of him, remember? And then Absalom, Amnon, Joab all bow down, and it's all fake. Remember that? But the question is, David, will you bow to the real king? And what has David already exhibited in the hope section? Yeah, I will. And so when he comes to the place where it is time to bow down, God says what? I honor that. What does David pray? Confuse Ahithophel's counsel. David, your repentant, loving kindness will continue. I'm providing you who? Hushai. Hushai. All right. Now, I think it was like day three of the semester, or maybe day four. I told you to remember something. I told you to remember the dusty-haired man. Remember that? Whoa, you guys do? That's really impressive. I almost forgot him. Uh... Some of you are like, I don't remember the dusty-haired man. It's only the girls that remember dusty-haired men. Okay, uh, the because uh, they have a really good memory. That's why they're studious, unlike the guys. Okay, so the who is the dusty-haired man? The Amalekite. Good. And the Amalekite is the dusty-haired man because he signals, and he's the herald of what? This is the. What does the Amalekite say? Saul is Saul is dead. The Saulite dynasty is over. And here's the weird tension. The only other dusty-haired man you have is who? Hushai. And so as David's walking and Hushai appears, what do you you're all like, "Oh no, not you again." Right? <coughs> Let me put it this way. You guys are familiar with the Grim Reaper, yes? When you see him, what do you think? Death, right? Uh, when we get to the Minor Prophets, when you hear the pottery man or the potter, you're going to think exile. But when you hear, look at the dusty-haired man, you think the kingdom is over. That's what you're supposed to think. That's what happened with Saul, and now David comes along, and he's like, oh no, I've seen you before. You're the dusty-haired man. It's over. But what's the irony? Hushai is there to save the kingdom. See the, see, the, see the play? You think it's over because David is such a failure. But because of God's loving kindness, it's not over. Do you see that? It looks like it's over. The Grim Reaper is dead uh, there until the Grim Reaper smiles at David and says, I'm here to kill your enemies. Not you. Haha, <laughs> just, just plain. And, and, it, and that's exactly what happens in this text. Do you see how, it's, how this all fits together? Does this make sense to you? It's exciting. Hushai is brilliant, by the way. You will see this and you'll be like, Hushai is the man. He is. He really is the man of the hour. He is God's gift to David. And David says, if you pass over with me, you'll be a burden to me. Why? Because Hushai is a nerd. And Hushai is not a warrior. And so Hushai is going to be a burden. But here's what Hushai's job is. It's a suicide mission of intelligence. Thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. Do you understand? What we will see is that Ahithophel's counsel is like the word of God. It's like prophecy. Prophecy. How are you going to thwart 
prophecy. You can't. Does that make sense? This is an impossible mission, and David knows it, but he's appealing. This is a big appeal to what? God's loving kindness. God has already seemed to indicate in providence, I'll work this out for you, David. Even though you're not a good guy, but I still have loving kindness, covenant faithfulness to the promises. So now the counter plot is preserved, and now he has counter, I guess, intel. It's all established now. The counterintelligence is now all established in loving kindness. So Hushai, David's friend, that's actually an important phrase for later, comes into the city and Absalom into Jerusalem. Any questions there? Does this all make sense? Do you see the hope? Nothing's really happened, right? It's not like Absalom's dead or Hushai's already done anything. It's just hope. Hope is lost. Hope is gained because of God's loving kindness. Well, let's continue on. Now, this is actually where I thought we were going to start. Um, Here's the second round of loss, or lack, I guess, lack of leadership. (coughs) Okay, part two. Um, David meets Ziba. Do you guys remember Ziba? Who's Ziba? Yeah, the, the servant of Saul who now has to work for Mephibosheth. And remember, a long time ago, I think it was like five, six weeks ago, maybe seven, maybe eight, uh, I said <coughs> Mephibosheth, or Ziba had what? Had everything. He, he owned all the fields. He was the master of the house. That's why David calls him. Does that make sense? And he loses it all. And I said, there's obviously going to be some jealousy involved, right? Now here's where it comes back to bite us. Here, Ziba has donkeys, 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. That's a lot of food, but you do have a lot of people to feed. And, and David, and, and David asks, why do you have these? And Ziba says, look, I know you need some major refreshment. This is perfect food for wandering in the wilderness. It's going to give you water content. It's going to revive you. It's going to be lush. It's going to be, there are actually delicacies in some cases, like raisins and fruits, summer fruits and the jug of wine. This is just all for very great refreshment. And if you're already tired and you're already desperate, food does wonders, doesn't it? Food does wonders. It's kind of like the lust of the flesh. And the king says, where is your where is your master's son? Now why is that the stupidest question in the whole wide world? He can't walk. <laughs> so he, he can't come anyways. Does that make sense? It's, it's not like there's no way to verify anything now. The guy is lame. He can't do anything. So if Ziba, let's say, just hypothetically, says, I know how to get my kingdom back now. And Mephibosheth says, no, no, don't do it. (laughs) There's nothing that he can do, right? Ziba was supposed to take care of him. And not only that, we know in the past that Ziba has what? Great jealousy. 
And David should have been clued in on this too. But Ziba says, Today the house of, that Mephibosheth proclaims that he thinks he's going to get the kingdom back. Why is that the dumbest thing, like the dumbest supposition that you could ever have? Yeah, one, like Absalom's going to give it back to you. Absalom wants it. What's the other, what's the, why is this a dumb on another level? Give it back? Mephibosheth what? Never had it. Right? Mephibosheth was lame, remember? Why did Rechev and Ba'anah execute Ishbosheth? Because it was between them, the military leaders, and who? Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth was lame, and he couldn't do anything, so the military took, their, took it into their own hands. Remember that in 2 Samuel 4? Mephibosheth never had the kingdom. He was never eligible, remember? He was living in exile. <laughs> he was a loser from the very beginning. That's why he pled for David. And that's another thing why this becomes really silly. Do you think Absalom's going to treat Mephibosheth nice when Mephibosheth has been doing what this entire time? Leeching off of David? Mephibosheth will be viewed as a what? A David supporter. Any way you slice and dice this, this makes what? No sense. No sense whatsoever. But remember, in the past, David, what's a mark of David's foolishness? He's always tricked by women and people talking. In general, right? I mean, women was the last straw in, in, the, in the thing. But he's always, like, Amnon, I'd like to bake some bread. I'd like to get my sister to bake bread for me. Why? Love-shaped heart cakes. <laughs> he was like, well, okay, yeah, all right. Absalom, I'd like to take Amnon to a lonely field. Why? Come on, Dad. Okay. Yeah, like, don't you want to accept Absalom back? No, you do, don't you? Oh, I guess so, you know. I mean, this, and then it's like, Dad, can I go to Hebron, like where you were once king, to pay vows that I should have paid years ago? And uh, for God? You don't even love God. I know, but come on, let me go. And David says, okay. <laughs> this, is, this is actually worse than all of those. And, and we don't actually get why, but what did David promise Mephibosheth? You will have this. Why? Because of the loving kindness of your brother. This was a covenant promise. You don't just go back on covenant promises. Does that make sense? You don't just do that lightly. And here, what did David do? Because of some grapes, some wine, some donkeys, and some clever speech that really isn't very clever, he says what? I'll reverse everything I promise to give to Jonathan. This is the worst treachery of all. It's one thing to plan accidentally a murder or a rape. Those things, David just was dumb. It's another thing to proactively undo something that, that actually was originally why you were a good man and a good king. This is David. He's a fool. He lacks military ability and he lacks the ability to make good decisions. He's not the king. 
He cannot be the king. He is a failure. And this is what we see. He cannot do what is right. And you know what the irony is? Read verse 4. Someone just read the whole verse. Okay, I pay homage. What's the word there? The word for? Prostrate, bow down. And what's the irony? See if you can pick this up. The lowercase capital I, K I. No, 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 no. Just, just, Ziba says what? Uh, yeah, this all, this all goes back there. This is a downward spiral from there, but. Yeah, it is the whole bowing down thing, except for what? Well, that's true, but is he? He just said it. He didn't even do it. It's like, I bow down! It's like, you forget it, David. You don't even need people to bow down to trick you anymore. You're so dumb, I'm just going to say it. You know, it's all fake. Right? Before, at least they were bowing down. Now, now it's just, I'm just going to say I bow down. Like, what's the difference? If we're all going to lie, I mean, why put the physical effort forward? Do you see that? He just says it. Now, granted, maybe he did actually bow down, but what does the text want you to see? It's just verbal now. It's becoming so hollow, this Davidic king. Why? Because he's no longer king. He doesn't deserve to be bowed down to anymore. Does that make sense, everybody? It's just, it's just all formality. Okay, he promised in 2 Samuel 9, Jonathan, or Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, would have everything. That was a covenant promise. That was, that was the act of David's loving kindness to Jonathan. That was an agreement that they had made. And now he had reversed everything. And with that, Ziba says, yeah, and gave it to this guy, and Ziba just says, you, like, what kind of king are you? You're just, I mean, you're a pushover. You're worse than a pushover. You're a dumb pushover. I mean, you know, you don't have any authority anymore. You're foolish. And all you get is lip service in return. <coughs> That's the lack. All right? Now we compound. David doesn't just lack ability to make good military decisions, and he's not just that. It underscores his ability that he's just foolish. He's just plain foolish. He cannot be the right king. Things are compounding. Even more, verse 5 and following gets us into the hope section. Gets us into the hope section. They go through the city, Bahurim. That's an important city. Underline, circle, remember it, memorize it, whatever it takes. Bahurim. And at this place, you have this guy whose name is Shimi. And Shimi starts what? Cursing David and... And throwing rocks at him. Throwing rocks at him is not just like, hey, have some pebbles or whatever. What is he trying to do? He's trying to stone David to death because he views him as a murderer. So this guy is proclaiming that David is under curse and he, de- he deserves to be executed. And he says, get out, get out, leave this place, get out of Israel, you man of bloodshed and you 
immoral men. Literally, a son of Belial, which is a fancy schmancy way of saying like the worst apostate possible. And is Shimi right or wrong? He's right. He's right. That's what you have to understand. He is correct in his assessment of David, at least thus far. Did David deserve to die? Was he a man of bloodshed? Did he commit acts that were very base and vile? Yes. Now notice the rest of his statement, and let's evaluate. <clears throat> the Lord has given the kingdom into the... Or wait. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul. Now did really David shed any blood of the house of Saul? Not quite. So that's not right. And he has returned... Or, Given, taken the kingdom from you, which is true, and put it into the hand of your son Absalom. Is that true? Is, no, that's not true either. But his conclusion here is probably true, is it not? Behold, you are taken into your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Is that true? Yeah. And really, the test is what? Are you going to confess that he's right? Or are you going to not confess? Right Here, will you recognize the true king and will you recognize that you are under curse? God has left you and instead of saying that, just pretending that he's always been with you because you're the king, no, you acknowledge God has left me. But are you also going to acknowledge that because he's left you, you're not blessed, you're what? Cursed. You're under covenant curse now. Which is exactly what I've been saying with the Davidic covenant, right? After David, it all goes down and down and down until the curse of exile. Everyone remember this? Well, you acknowledge, David, the truth. You're under curse. Are you going to just continue to pretend that you're innocent? And here's the perfect opportunity, Abishai. Abishai loves killing people. He just does. He wants to kill everybody. He wants to kill Saul. And he says, why should this dead dog curse the, my lord, the king? I'm just going to, let me just go over and cut off his head. You know, it's, you know, Abishai is a bro of Joab. There are two peas in a pod. <clears throat> and what does David say? What happens if God told me, told him what? Curse David. This could be totally from the Lord. Because it's true. If I killed him, then I'm in even further what? Condemnation. Instead, instead, don't touch him. Let him curse me. And perhaps, here's the hope. Remember, what was the hope here? That because God, God still has loving kindness, he may be able to turn it into good, he may be able to have counter, you know, provide counterintelligence in the future because David recognizes the capital K-I-N-G. Well, here, God, he recognizes, I'm under curse. Maybe God will turn it into what? What does it say in verse 12? Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return what? Good instead of cursing. Maybe he'll turn this whole thing around. That's hope. I am under curse. But maybe God can turn it around. Maybe God can instead, what? If you turn it around, it's not just that David gets blessing, it's that who gets curse? Absalom. Do you see the interchange here? Maybe God will completely switch things around, turn the tables, and I'll have good. 
just like Absalom's having right now, and he'll have curse. Everyone see that? Maybe God can turn the tables. So they just go in shame. They bear the curse because that's what they deserve. And this is exactly what is going on. God's presence, he recognizes, God's not necessarily with me. That means God is probably against me and I'm cursed. And he confesses that. Very, very powerful. And the king and the people were all being refreshed at the end of this long, long journey. It's going in the right direction. Next page. <clears throat> yeah. Um, yes. I think those are those punishments are equated or paralleled with blessings and curses in like the Deuteronomic covenant. Yeah. Like if you obey, you're going to get blessed. If you don't, you're going to get cursed. Um, and there's more to be said for that. And I, I think I can get that later. And you have to look in the Psalms to really get some good confirmation of that. But um, what's going to happen later will cool us in. Let's put it that way. Well, if we have the lack, David is a fool. He can't make decisions. The hope, even though he's cursed, God can maybe turn that around. Here's the loving kindness. Here's the loving kindness. Absalom, all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem and Ahithophel with them. And then there's Hushai. All right? So what do you have? You have a very tight-knit group of people. You have Absalom. You have all the people. <clears throat> and you have even Ahithophel, who's singled out because they're going to be kind of arch-nemesis. And Hushai comes. Hushai comes, and he's David's friend. And he comes to Absalom, and Hushai says to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. <clears throat> Hushai has the impossible task. What is Hushai's task? <clears throat> well, yeah, there's two things. One, you've got to infiltrate, right? You've got to get in. And then you have to what? Confuse the council. Both of them are impossible. <clears throat> For one, if you have the man, like Ahithophel, right? If you have grandpa who tells you everything that's right and true, then you don't what? You don't need anybody else. So how, how are you going to even get in? Does that make sense? This is a test of loving kindness. Counterintelligence. This is the beginning of God turning things around. Do you see how this works? The hope was maybe counterintelligence will work. Counterintelligence is in play. David's a fool. He has no intelligence. He's under curse, but maybe God will turn it around, and now God's going to turn things around. And it's through Hushai and him being very, very clever. Watch what he does. Long live the king. Long live the king. He's saying that in front of who? Absalom. But does he have to mean Absalom? Is Absalom even king? No. He's not really the king yet. Who's the real king? David. So what is Hushai really saying? 
Long live David. Long live David. But Absalom interprets that to mean what? Oh, you're calling me king. Really, really cool. Why are you doing this? And he says, isn't your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go to your friend? And then Hushai says, no. What's my loyalty to? The Lord. The one that the Lord has what? Chosen. But, but who has the Lord chosen? David. <laughs> it, it's just that he doesn't say my loyalty is to my friend. He gives the theological answer. My loyalty is to the one that the Lord has chosen. And Absalom thinks what? You mean me. And Hushai says, no, I mean the one that the Lord has actually chosen. You see this? It's all very clever subterfuge. And he says, besides, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence so I will be in your presence? Now, this is a very clever play. Because you might say, well, that's a lie. He's not going to serve his father or he's not going to serve the son in the same way he served his father. But actually, you're interpreting the word as, as likeness or similarity. But there's another way to interpret as. Content. I will do as he said. That's another way of saying what? I will do what he said. Does that make sense to everybody? Are you with me on this? And so what is what could Hushai also be saying here? What your father told me to do, I'll do it with you. And what did dad tell Hushai to do? Confuse Ahithophel's counsel. Do you see this? But you listen to it and you think, oh, he's just saying that he's going to agree with Ahithophel. Or he's just going to agree, you know, he's going to really be my great counselor. That's not what he's saying. But that's what it sounds like. You see this? God empowered Hushai to have incredible ability to spin words. And Hushai, who never says a lie, is totally misunderstood by Absalom and Absalom accepts him into the inner council. He's in. See that? Everyone got that? Hushai is pretty incredible. Uh-huh. But Ahithophel <coughs> not fooled by that? No. Ahithophel wasn't fooled by that at all. And you'll see you'll see what happens. You'll see what happens. I don't I think Ahithophel understood exactly what was going on and thought that this was a bad idea. <coughs> and so Ahithophel is still the primary guy, though, so he's not afraid. Notice, well, who does Absalom always ask first? Ahithophel. And Ahithophel says, and there's two things happening here, and or actually three things. First, when you look at verse uh, 20, when you look at verse 20, the first thing you need to understand is that this is setting this is setting up background. This is setting up background for the rest of the loving kindness. What does God have to counteract? Okay, you got the guy in, and that was really clever, and that was really cool. I mean, right? I mean, if you, we we would need to spend more time to really get the nuances of this, but it is quite quite amazing. Um, uh, but the 
But you got him in. But what do you have to overcome? <coughs> How good is Ahithophel? <coughs> That's the first issue. The second issue out of the three that I'm going to mention is that we have to also see the fulfillment of God's judgment. The fulfillment of God's judgment. Remember, you can't just get rid of a curse by just getting rid of a curse. Judgment has to be what? You have to... Judgment has to be served. Does that make sense to everybody? And David has already been handed down a judgment. The sword will never leave your house. Never. And not only that, somebody will sleep with your wives. Remember that? The turning point has to be someone's got to pay. Someone's got to pay. Well, that's the second thing. First thing is background. Second is judgment is served. And third, (coughs) third, I think, these two things amplify, these two things amplify Ahithophel's standing. These two things, numbers one and number two, the background of what's going on, and number two, uh, the power of God's prophecy, I guess, in judgment served, amplifies Ahithophel's ability. All right, watch. So what does Ahithophel say? Go sleep with the concubines. And then you will be so odious to your father that there will be no way that you know there can be peace between you two. And everyone who's with you will be strengthened. So what does Ahithophel do? He pitch, or what does Absalom do? He pitches a tent on the... <coughs> irony? David was on the roof. right? But he doesn't stay there. But that's where the sin starts. Ahith- Absalom just says, let's just take it out in the open. Pitches the tent on the roof. Sleeps with the council, sleeps with the concubines. This, here's how it works. Number two has been fulfilled, right? Has judge, has justice been served? Yes. That means the curse can now what? At least temporarily for David, can change. Does that make sense? Because justice has been served. The curse has been completed. So. Now you can have a turning point. God can turn things around. But at the same time, do you also see that because justice has been served, Ahithophel's advice, do you understand why we say his advice is like the word of God? It's not only because it's so effective, here's why it amplifies. Because his word actually what? Fulfills prophecy. His word fulfills prophecy. That's how powerful his word is. Not, not only does he say it and it happens, it is God's word in and of itself against David. Does that make sense? And so what is Hushai up against? What is Hushai up against? He's up against a guy who's basically infallible. And he's up against a guy who has a reputation for being infallible. Now, if... Okay. Battle of the dorms. And you have the master planner of Battle of the Dorms. And he says, if I've never lost a Battle of the Dorm for the last 80 years. You know, if you follow my advice, you will win. Do you need second opinions? No way. You gotta be crazy to take a second. And if you did ask for a second opinion, you'd probably be, you know, eating bananas, drowning in the pool with change 
in your mouth or something. So, <clears throat> so Ahithophel comes forward and says, look, my counsel is irrevocable. Next page. And he says, here's what you do. Get 12,000 men. Why 12,000? There are several factors that point into this. Why 12,000? <coughs> That's the first thing. 12 tribes of Israel. Get a symbolic force that shows all Israel is behind you. But the force is also what? Small enough that it can be gathered quickly. But also big enough that it's going to overwhelm David. Some have estimated that the 12,000 uh, force, 12,000-sized force will be five times the size of David's army at this current moment. Okay? <coughs> and you pursue David tonight. You pursue David tonight. Remember what I said, what David should have done was what? Attack immediately. And what does Ahithophel say? Attack immediately. He knows exactly what to do. He knows that David was totally foolish. And he knows how to exploit that against him. Do you see that? I will come upon him when he's weary and exhausted. And is David weary and exhausted right now? Absolutely. Because he's been getting stoned <laughs> for like miles and miles, right? <clears throat> and I will come upon him. I, as in who? Ahithophel. And I will strike down the king alone. What do you start to see? This is about revenge. Don't mess with, don't mess with grandpa. You heard Bathsheba, you hurt my son-in-law whom I love. You know, you're mine. I'll lead them myself. And remember, Ahithophel is the master strategist. He can do nothing wrong. And so, if he personally leads the troops, not only is the big decision going to be made by him, but what? Every step-by-step decision on the ground. Do you see how, that, how, that, how effective that can be? There's no room for error here. I'll do it myself. And I'll corner the king by myself. And we just... <clears throat> and what's the whole point? Is it to kill all of Israel? All his army? No, it's just to take out who? The king. All you got to do is kill the king. So let me do it. And I'll bring back all the people to you. And in 24 hours, the kingdom is yours. Verse 3. Brilliant plan. It's what David should have done all along. And, and here's what, what's the irony, and, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but you've got to see this. What happens in the end? You know what happens in the end. Who do they target? Do they try to kill all the Israelites? Does David's force try to annihilate the entire opposition? Who do they target? Absalom. Ahithophel was 100% correct. <clears throat> and David knows it. And so David actually takes Ahithophel's advice, or not David, Joab takes Ahithophel's advice against himself. Do you see that? Well, for some weird reason, for some weird reason, Absalom says what? Let's ask Hushai. 
And why is that stupid? Yeah, you just heard the best advice you're ever going to get. It's infallible. It's 100% correct. And it's, he's personally going to oversee this whole thing. You don't have to do anything. How much, how much more do you want? And you know this guy's motivated by what? Revenge. So how much more do you want? Why do you call Hushai? I'll tell you why you call Hushai. God's loving kindness intervenes and compels Absalom to ask for Hushai. And Hushai, the first words out of the guy's mouth are, no good. No good. No good. Uh, some have suggested that the reason he said these first things was to emphasize that Ahithophel's advice was no good. So others have said that he was going to say that anyway, and he just had to figure out why it wasn't good. Uh, it was a stall tactic. But I think Hushai is on, the, on ball here. No good. You know, in English, I guess it's last, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's, it's the first thing out of the guy's mouth. It's no good. He says, look, David isn't exhausted. He's not, he's not, uh, he's not exhausted from traveling, even though he was. He's fierce and mighty. Contradicts that, right? He also says, look, you'll never be able to find David alone. David's going to be sleeping away from his troops, which he was not, right? Because the text clearly says David and his men were all together. But Hushai's like, well, no, you know that they're not going to sleep together because he knows he's the target. <clears throat> Behold, he has hidden himself probably in one of the caves or another place. And, and he's going to bring you into a trap. Ahithophel doesn't even get this military stuff. He's going to bring you into a trap and Ahithophel is going to fall in the trap and then you're all going to be annihilated. Do you really want that? And this, is, this could be true. It has some precedent. Did David hide in caves ever? Yes. So he's kind, of a, he's kind of pulling out of the air a little bit. But here's where he gets Absalom. Because what do we know about Absalom? He's incredibly vain. Weighs his hair gets it cut, rides in chariots, talks himself up all the time, gets what he wants like a little spoiled brat. That's exactly Absalom. If Ahithophel fails, then all Israel will know that your father is a mighty man. And they, and everyone will lose heart in you. Do you really want Absalom for people not to like you anymore? And Absalom's like, oh. Right? Appeal to the vanity. Here's what I counsel. Verse 11. Take a lot of time. Gather an army from Dan to Beersheba. Huge army! Don't you want to lead a huge, 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 huge army? So that you personally go into the battle. Don't you want to hit the fell to go? Don't you want the glory of the battle? Don't you want to be in the front line, sh- showing off that you're the mighty man? So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found. Now, why is that a little funny? Huh? He just said he be found. Yeah, you just said you can't, you're not going to be able to find David, and he's like, once you do that, you're going to be able to find David. How? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. And we will fall on him as dew falls on the ground. And dew is plentiful. You know what I mean? And so this is glorious. It's like, 
you're going to be overwhelming him with force and he will kill every single man that he has. And why is that absolutely dumb? Yeah, it's like, dude, that's like a quarter of your army. Why would you kill your own army, right? That's a Hithophel's thought. Settle this as peaceful, peaceful as you can so you maintain stability. This would totally destabilize everybody. But Hushai doesn't care. What is he appealing to? Vanity. And it doesn't make sense for a vain person to say, well, you know what? It's not going to look very good, but we're going to have to do this to make sure the kingdom stays. No, just kill them all. Yeah, kill them all. I'll kill them all myself. And this is what's really funny. Go into a city and what are they going to do? What does it say? What does the text say? Read it. Verse 13. He withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will drag into the valley until not even a small stone is found there. Now, now think about that. Okay, just, just, just reason with that. You're going to lasso a city, and you're going to drag it into a valley, and then you're going to pull it all apart until not one small stone is found? First, that's called a waste of time. Because then what are you going to have to do? Rebuild the city. You're going to have to take every stone out of there and rebuild the thing. And it's just to kill David. I mean, this is ridiculous. And you're really going to put the manpower to do that? That's ridiculously. But it appeals to what? Vanity. Oh, that would be good. I mean, I'm the man who moves cities. I drag it into the valley. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said what? The council of Hushai is better than the council of Ahithophel. Now that is just plain madness. <laughs> but what? For the Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring calamity on Absalom. Things have now been what? Turned around. Why? God's loving kindness is in play. Yes? Um, Well, you have to subvert Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel says, he's weak and tired. And Hushai's like, no, 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 he's not weak and tired. He's a mighty man. You know how much he can fight. He's trying to, he's trying to show a clash of why Ahithophel's ideas are not good. And then, but then it brings up uh, like how people would view it. Um, mm-hmm. and it, seems to, it. It says that people will lose heart. Right, if you fail... Because you do this foolhardy strategy, which is actually a good strategy, people are going to lose faith in you. They're not going to like you anymore. They're not going to really be wholeheartedly behind you. And that totally would destroy your ego, wouldn't it now? If you are a vain man, and as Absalom was. And bye-bye, Absalom. Next page. The loving kindness continues. Because it's one thing to subvert somebody's plan, but what happens if Absalom gets some sense knocked into him and takes the Hithophel's advice. You've got to run and give the intel to somebody else. So Absalom, or excuse me, Hushai sends for the two priest's sons, who uh, Jonathan and Himaaz, who are staying at Ein Rogel. If you have if you go to Ibex, you should go to Ibex. You should go, you'll see Ein Rogel. Ein Rogel is just like smack dab outside of Jerusalem. It's really close. It's just like in the southeastern corner. And you can just I mean, you just go. And it's a well, and so probably this maidservant was going to get water, and she slips these two guys a message, and they run. But just to show you, just to show you that God is in control, that it's Yahweh preserving David's plan, not David. 
the two men are what? They're, they're spotted. Right? This, this plan could have gone all without a hitch, but it goes with a hitch for a reason. To show it's not because David was a brilliant planner. We know he's a fool. It's because God's loving kindness was in play. And God allowed him to be seen so that God would get the glory for the reason why these guys survive. And they arrive in this city called... What city? Bahurim. You've heard of the city before. What was the city? What was the city? When David got cursed. Remember how I said this is all about turning things... Around This city was for curse. Now this city is for shelter. This is where they take refuge to hide from the assassins. And the assassins are tricked by the woman. <coughs> and I don't have time to explain all that, how that works. But they're tricked by them, by her. The, the men move out. The men cross the river, tell David, hey, <coughs> you've got to move. You've got to get out. Or they cross the brook. And they go tell David, get out. And Ahithophel has counseled against you. David, overnight, transfers all his troops to the other side, thereby securing them from a possible retaliation attack by Ahithophel. And now Ahithophel's advice is what? Thwarted. And who knows that? Ahithophel. Right? Verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he knew it's over. Over. So he goes... Sets up his house and what? Commits suicide. He knew if you don't follow my advice, it's over. And was he right? Yeah. Because he knew what, I think he was smart enough to know what Hushai was up to. And that Hushai would have sent by now something to undo everything that Ahithophel had said. And so, here's the strange thing. David goes to what? Machanaim. Where, where have you heard this word before? Machanaim. Not Genesis, but it's in 2 Samuel. Who goes to Machanaim? Anyone remember? Anyone remember? It's at the beginning of 2 Samuel. Ishbosheth, he's at Machanaim. And once again, you have this illusion. <coughs> Dusty haired man, it looks like the kingdom's over, just like Saul's kingdom was over. David retreats to the same place that Saul's house retreated. Maybe the kingdom is over for who now? David, just like it was for Saul. But, but it's different this time. It's different. It's different because unlike before in retreat, yeah, Absalom has mighty men in place. You know, he has Amasa in place, and, and he has kind of the side of Gilead on his behalf, and there's more that, I could be, that could be said about this. But notice what happens when David arrives at Machanaim. He gets all this what? Look at the end of the verse. Look at the end of the passage. He gets all this 
food and refreshment. Do you see that? He gets all this food and refreshment. And so it's not, it's not a retreat of desperation as it is before, as it was before. This time it's a retreat into what? Strength. A stronger position. Does that make sense? And so it looks like the kingdom is over, but it's not over. It looks like the kingdom of Saul and it's going to end, but it's not the same. Why? Because of God's loving kindness. Turn to 2 Samuel 7.15 just so that you get this and you hear this clearly. What does God say? Someone read 2 Samuel 7.15 clearly loudly and relatively slowly. <coughs> See that? It won't be like who? Saul. It may look like Saul. There may be resemblances of Saul, but it's not going to be the same thing. Do you see that? Does this make sense to everybody now? Well, if God has turned things around, he's thwarted Ahithophel's counsel, He's put David in a position where he looks like Saul, but it's not the same thing. It's a position not of weakness, but of strength. Well, you know what's going to happen next. And what is that? The next page. The battle, right? The battle against Absalom in the forefront. It's all set up. It's all turned around now for that moment. And that's what we cover on Thursday.